0: Today we have an incredible privilege. Today um, we have a a guest speaker in Paul Gibbs. Uh, Paul and his wife Lynn, originally from from Manchester. Uh, Gee, I ruined that, that was way more. (laughs) What was that? That was a bit of Liverpool, a bit of rubbish. Um, Won't try that again. Uh, Originally from Manchester, now living in Texas, Uh, but Paul's the founder of the Pays Movement, which is an incredibly powerful evangelistic and discipleship uh, providing movement. And we're, we're in talks now with his people in Australia who are here, Jesse and so on, about getting some of the people that we'll talk about in a moment uh, involved in our church um, in the next year. So uh, it's incredibly exciting. But uh, I'm just honoured to have Paul here. Um, I've been following him from afar. He's a, a global leader in this area. And so we're very privileged to have him. So Paul, please come on up and share with us uh, what you have for today. Please welcome Paul. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, good morning everybody. It's nice to be here. It is true I do have a strange accent. I live in um, Texas now and uh, I knew there was going to be a problem because they can't speak English, those Americans. And I remember when we got there I, was, um, I asked for an order. I went to a restaurant and asked my own order and um, the waitress couldn't understand me so she asked me three times for my order and the third time she asked me in Spanish. She had no idea. <laughs> What language I was speaking, so. Um, I'm gonna start with, with sharing a little bit of my story, if that's okay with you. I, um, I come from a uh, non-Christian family, a really great family. Uh, weren't Christians, weren't religious in any way at all. Um, and when I was born, I was born with asthma and eczema. And uh, when I was 13, my eczema became septic, which meant I had a yellow pus on my arms and my legs. I had to lie in a bath at night, to soak my bandages, because when my bandages came off, my skin used to peel off. And um, it was really, really bad. And I was told it would take months for the septic stuff to go. But there was a teacher in my school and he was advertising this. It was a, like a, what we would call a tent crusade. And some of the boys from my school were going. It happened over a period of a week and they were coming back and they were kind of mocking what they saw. You know, People were singing to God and they had their arms raised up. It was really weird. But then they also shared that they saw people get healed. And so one of my mates said, Paul, you should go because you're a bit like a cripple. And so I went on the last night of this tent crusade and I heard the message, didn't fully understand it. Uh, but I kind of knew it was true, right? So the evangelist did this kind of trick thing. He said, uh, if you want to become a Christian, say this prayer. And I did. So I said the prayer. And then he said, if you've said the prayer, please put your hand up, which was a bit odd. i would never been to church really before, but I put my hand up. And then he said, um, if you put your hand up, please stand up. And I thought, this is getting a bit weird. This is the last thing I'll do. So I stood up. And then he said, if you stood up, please come to the back so we can pray for you. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to do that. And this quite cute blonde I'd been watching, she went forward. And just then I felt God call me. It was really weird. So I went forward and kind of gave my life to Jesus. And um, not knowing how church works, I thought, okay, now they pray for me. Now when I want to get healed. But of course, by the time I'd given my life to Jesus, everybody had gone home. And so I just got told, hey, here's a card and uh, if, you go, if you're in this number, uh, someone will pick you up and take you to church. So I went to church for the first time really and uh, heard the message, seek first the kingdom of God. And during that message, uh, the preacher said, hey, if you seek first the kingdom of God, uh, uh, he will take care of the rest. And also, you can pray directly to God, you don't need a priest. Um, so I prayed, I prayed for my skin and... Um, um, the doctor said it would take nine months to, for the septic stuff to go. Um, within less than a week, not only did the septic stuff gone, I never had eczema again. It just disappeared. It was crazy. So yeah, praise God. So this guy preached, and uh, these are the guys that we um, uh, were referring to. This was not the 80s, it was the 70s, okay, just so you know. So even further behind the fashion than you realise. So... <laughs> Uh, strikes were clearly in, and um, I, I so I got back and I got healed. I thought this is this is this is good news and bad news. It's good news because God is real, the Bible is true, and, and heaven's reality. And it's bad news because the devil's real, the Bible is true, and hell's a reality. And you can't believe in one without the other. You can't believe in heaven the way the Bible talks about it and not believe in hell. And I don't know how many Christians really believe that. I don't know. I don't know what percentage of evangelical Christians really believe that their next door neighbour is going to a life without God unless they turn to Jesus. I'm presuming it's few because how little we do about that sometimes, you know. But you can't believe in a God who absolutely loves goodness and ignore the fact that he hates evil. And he, and he punishes it. So for me, I was driven. I thought, I need to do something about this. And at one point, I thought I was going to be a missionary. And I went to train in Scotland. And then God uh, led me back to Manchester. When I got back to Manchester, I just offered to help my pastor out. And I got this opportunity to go into a school and run a lunchtime club in a school, which is kind of like, it was kind of like full circle for me. And uh, I'm looking around the school and I'm thinking, well, there's like there's hundreds of young people in this school and very few in our church, and someone, someone else has built the building, don't need to raise a building campaign for a building, and someone else is paying the staff and the electric bills and the gas bills and organising the young people. What if I could just kind of show up and share my story? So I went to the Education Committee in Manchester, because I knew they had what was called a personal social uh, education curriculum, and I said, hey, can I have a copy of that? And I underlined like six subjects that I knew something about, And I went to a teacher and said, Hey, when you do law and order, you bring in the police. And when you do health and safety, you bring in the firemen. On these six subjects, maybe I could come and be like a guinea pig and kids could ask me questions. And the teacher said, Yes. And my first introduction that I can remember in the school went like this Well, class, we've been looking at the myths that people believe in around the world. And last week we looked at Noah and the ark. You're not going to believe this. But we found somebody who believes it really happened. And his name's Paul. Let's give him a round of applause. And I was up and I did my thing, and, and young people were saying, Well, why do you believe? You always believe this? No. Well, do your parents believe this? No. Well, why do you believe this? Well, I have this skin disease. And I got to share my story with them. And within about a couple of years, I was, I was reaching 17 schools and 10,000 young people. But there was a problem, and the problem was that young people would say to me, well, how do I find out more about God? And I would say, there's a local church just around the corner from you. On on a Friday night, if you go, there's a youth meeting. I went to a youth meeting. It was great. And their first question, of course, was, will you be there? Well, no, I can't be in all these different places. So they wouldn't go. They're not going to walk into a building, they don't know. Because it's all about relationship, Right. And so in 1992, I, I, we, we started PAYS. Um, my wife, Foxy Lynn, as I call her, and I, we started PAYS, and this was our first team. And we offer a, um, we offer a gap year apprenticeship, a, a missions apprenticeship. It's free. So we say to young people all over the world, hey, come and join us. It's free. Your training, your accommodation, uh, your meals are provided for, and we'll equip you, put you on a team, and train you, and, and train you in, in evangelism and discipleship and Bible study. And I was really happy, I'm 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 looking at the wrong place, that's me in the middle, my arms are forwarded because I'm feeling really smug. Yeah, it's happened, the vision is a reality. I'm feeling really good about myself. I hadn't realized then just how sneaky God is, right? And um, so then God started to show me the bigger picture and so um, we offer this mission year and uh, we started in England and now these are the countries that we're in around the world. And we're reaching young people uh, all over the show, which is amazing. So just a couple of quick stories, really, just, just to give you an idea. These are the young people. This is before COVID because COVID kind of crippled our teams because schools shut down and all our missionaries had to go home. So we're rebuilding now. But this, this was just from the UK. Uh, Some of people, you can see the age of them, passionate young people wanting to tell. They don't know everything. They don't know hardly anything, to be honest. But God is really helping them share their faith. Uh, this, was in, uh, this is in America. I got told you can't do this in America, it won't work in America. It's like nothing's impossible for God apart from school's work, right? But we're in, in the schools in America and, and you know, in our local church, we're seeing young people now coming in to the church from the, the schools. Uh, this is in Africa. It looks like from this picture that we've got young people in the school learning how to study the Bible. Actually, what we're doing is we're training them how to share the Bible and to lead Bible studies. So we're missionaries who make missionaries. Uh, Pay's motto is missionaries who make missionaries. Uh, we encourage people to live a life on mission. Uh, this is a young lady. She, um, she became a Christian by following the team around. She wanted to do what the team did. Uh, she wasn't a Christian, and then she became a Christian on mission. Uh, and Then she joined Pays. and this is her teaching young people in the favelas in Brazil. Uh, this is in Islamabad. Think about the name, Islamabad. Uh, we had... We had We had a school, a public Muslim school, call us to complain that we weren't in their school. Why are we in the school down the road, but you're not in our school? And one of the the things we'll talk about a little bit later is how do you get yourself invited? How do you get yourself invited? Uh, This is in Germany. Um, These guys are showing off a document because the German government was so kind of impressed with our training, they paid people, they gave people in Germany uh, money to come on Pays, which was kind of cool. So if you ever meet a Pays worker and they're German, ask them for money because they're loaded. They've got too much money and they don't know what to do with it. Uh, This is my favourite story, this is Clem and her nanny. Uh, Clem was from India, Chennai, came to the UK, trained for two years, went back and said to his pastor, there's a whole different way of doing youth ministry, a different way of doing this. Uh, Can we do it here in India? And his pastor said, well, no. That's, it's an English thing, it's an American thing, it won't work here. And Clem said, no, no, Pastor, it's a, it's a Jesus thing. It's a, honest. So the pastor said, okay, I'll give you six months. It went so well, the pastor literally gave him a wife. And her name is her nanny. Uh, they had an arranged marriage and now they lead pays together in, in Chennai and they're training. Bible. Bible colleges are sending their students to Pais to be trained by these guys in different methodology of how to share their faith. But just as a side issue, if you've got a young man that you're fed up with at home, you've got a son and you're thinking, I need him out of the house, send him to me, we'll get him all loved up and you can pay me a finder's fee, it'll be fine, it'll be good, okay. So last year we reached 2,000, just over 2,000 young people in schools uh, worldwide, which is small for us because we're rebuilding. Um, But more importantly for us, we trained uh, 3,500 young people in how to share their faith and how to reach others and how to disciple others. Uh, And this was exciting for us. Um, But sometimes I kind of wonder what's going on. Some recent stats came out recently, this is interesting, so I don't know if you've thought about this, but um, the amount of Christians who became Christians before the age of 18, 94%. I don't know if we did a show of hands here, but I would imagine quite a large percentage of you became a Christian before you were 18. Now I did the maths, because I'm a smart, okay? I did the math on this, so and I realised that that meant the amount of Christians who converted after 18 was only 6%. So you would think that youth ministry and particularly schools ministry would be massive, right? It would be massive. Because if we really care about people, if we genuinely believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father and all these young people are on a destiny without God forever, for eternity, then surely we would put most of our energy into youth ministry and particularly into schools ministry. In England, there's a law that says that every school has to have an act, a daily act of Christian worship, corporate worship, and there's there's an appendage to that that says if a school hasn't got anybody on staff willing to do it, they have to find somebody from outside. You would think that every church in Britain had a plan for that, right? But very, 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 very few do. What's going on? Recently. this is, I'm in America, and 90% of young people go to school, and yet virtually nothing's happening almost, it seems to me. Something, but not very much. Pastors were asked recently, um, is mission a mandate for all Christians? And 85% of pastors said yes, 15% said no. Then identifying Christians were asked. So people who aren't practicing Christians, but they identify as a Christian, you know, born into a Christian family, maybe they go to church at Christmas or Easter or something. And 46% of them said, less than half said, that uh, missions is a mandate for all Christians. So then they asked, practising Christians, people like you and I. And the percentage of them was even less. I find that fascinating. And one of the questions is, why is that? Why is there such a mismatch between what Jesus called us to do, And what we're actually doing. And I think there are two main reasons. The first one is we don't preach what Jesus preached when it comes to the gospel. And secondly, we don't do it the way Jesus did it. And this morning and this afternoon or this evening, when we do the the workshop, the masterclass, we're going to look at those uh, two things. But I think it starts with the two different ways that we can connect with God there's the religion that Jesus witnessed and the religion that Jesus wanted. And it seems to me that there are two types of Christianity. There always have been. In fact, before the two types of Christianity, there were two types of Judaism. There have always been two basic, before Catholic and Protestant and Calvinism and Armenians, There were two fundamental ways. And I'm going to give you my language for them. The first is Christian-centric. To be Christian-centric is to pursue our vision, do it God's way, so that he gives us what we want. We do the right thing, we avoid doing the wrong thing, because we want to live a blessed life. We want God to bless us, we believe in God. It's Christianity, it is Christianity. But it's not what was in the heart of Jesus. And then we have what Jesus wanted. When he preached, seek first the kingdom of God. We pursue the kingdom, God's way, so we give him what he wants. And I guess this morning the question is, which of these two Christianities is your Christianity? What drives the reason you came to church this morning? What drives the reason you give? What drives the reason you serve? What drives the reason you share your faith with others? If it's about giving God what he wants, what is it that he wants? Well, he wants repentance. The Bible says this, that this is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. But when we say repentance, what do we mean? Because I think it's actually more inspirational and more exciting than we think. When I was taught repentance, it was basically this. You're walking one way and the word repent means turn around. So you turn away, you think, I don't want to sin anymore. No, 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 I mustn't sin anymore. No, no, I mustn't I must keep looking this way. But actually there's more to it than that. Um, I have two sons, they're old now. I have uh, three grandchildren, Uh, but when my sons were young, uh, they were quite cute, but a little bit naughty, but they weren't too bad. And one day I came home and my computer was full of pink, in America they call it Sharpie, but we, knowing English, call it felt tip, right? You know felt tip, yeah? Pink felt tip, it was on the screen, it was on the case and it was on the keyboard, I thought I'm going to kill him. I know it's not Levi, he was too small to reach. He was in my office, it's going to be Joel, I'm going to murder him. But I will to accuse him, because that's what the devil does. I put on my dad's voice and if he cries, I know he's done it. So he was downstairs with his three aunts who were spoiling and rotten. And I simply said, Joel, come to my office, please. There was a gap and then there was a... Oh, why daddy, why daddy, it wasn't me, daddy. I didn't write on the computer, daddy, honest, daddy. He's very cute, but he wasn't very sharp, right? He kind of gave himself away. So I'm like, come upstairs, come to my office. So he's, he's gradually walking upstairs and all these aunties, his auntie Lisa, Julie, uh, they're, they're all like, Paul, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Because he's got those, don't whip me again eyes. You know, he's kind of milking the crowd and he's walking upstairs. By the time he gets to the door of my study, I'm really furious. And he's doing this whole kind of like, <laughs> you can't get the words out. You know, like, you know what kids are like when they know the end is nigh. It's kind of that kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and I said, Joel, look what you did. It's not even my computer. It's the church's computer. It's God's computer. You know, you're going to burn in. I didn't go that far, but I was kind of building up to it. And he's I'm so And I got a rag. I said, it won't come off, you know. And I went like that. And it came off. And I was pretty annoyed about this, to be honest, because I was kind of building up some steam, right? So he, but what really frustrated me was what he did, because he literally went like this. He literally went, I'm just, this a, yippee, and he skips away. Oh, you come back here, sunshine. So he comes back. Said you still did it, you know? He said, yeah, dad, but he wiped it all away. He oh, wiped it all away, and he was really excited, and he just changed instantly. But why did he change? It wasn't because he thought I was going to whip him, because we didn't really do that so much. It was because he could go back to how things were. He was upset because he was being smart, he was having a great time and I moved him away. Now the Jewish understanding of repentance, the word there is teshuva. And it means to turn and return. It's not simply turning away from sin, it's returning. Of course the question then is, what is it returning to? Lamentation says, Turn us to you, O Adonai, and we will be returned. Repentance is to lead us back to what we were created for, to return us to who God created us to be, and to turn our world back to who and what it's supposed to be. That's what repentance is. It's not simply about turning away from sin and not looking at it anymore. It's to recognize why we were created in the first place. Like, why do you exist? And this is really basic and maybe a little bit sweet, but the reason you exist fundamentally is because God did not have anybody exactly like you. And He wanted somebody exactly like you. There's the way you think, there's the way you do. Nobody's the same. I travel the world, I've never seen anybody or met anybody who's exactly like somebody else. There's something completely and absolutely, utterly unique about you and God wanted that and that's why you exist. But there's a greater purpose to that than you think because we were all created for something bigger than any of us. We were created for his kingdom and for his purpose. When I discussed Teshiva with a a rabbi, it was interesting because on their email in our discussion, their footnote was this. They had the signature and it said, your next action will change the world make it count. Are you making your repentance count? Turning without returning is not a good thing. In fact, Jesus gave an extreme example of this. I'll just read it to you if you you don't remember. It's Matthew 12, verse 43 to 45. This is what Jesus said about turning without returning to who God's called us to be and the purpose that God created us for. When a defiling evil spirit is expelled from someone, it drifts through the desert looking for an oasis. Some, unspec- sorry, some unsuspecting soul, it can be devil. When it doesn't find anyone, it says, I'll go back to my old haunt. On return, it finds the person spotlessly clean, but vacant. It then runs out and rounds up seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they all move in, whooping it up. That person ends up far worse than if they'd ever gotten cleaned up in the first place. That's what this generation is like. You may think you've cleaned out the junk from your lives and gotten ready for God but you weren't hospitable to my kingdom message and now all the devils are turning, sorry, are moving back in. That's an extreme case Jesus gives of turning without returning but true repentance will return us to who we can be And true repentance will return our world to how things should be. Or, as the Jews put it, shalom. You may be familiar with that word, shalom. We we see it simply as peace, but there's more to it than peace. Shalom means completion, a restoration, a bringing things back to how it should be. One scholar says this, We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And the Talmud, that great Jewish writing, simply says the entire Torah, the entire first part of the Bible is for the sake of the ways of shalom. All of God's teaching, all of Jesus' teaching points to an end in mind. And the end in mind is not you. We're all created something bigger than any of us. There's a bigger purpose for us to bring this world back to what God created. And, and for that, we need to understand what the real gospel is. What is the message of Jesus? Because I'm going to suggest we don't preach what Jesus preached. It's partly because we're, we've had years and decades and decades of emphasizing a Christian-centric message. You can go into any Christian, well, they don't exist much now, do they? Christian bookshops. But you you used to be able to go into, and there's books everywhere about living your best life now. And how Jesus came to die for us. And and then we start saying things that aren't even in the Bible. Like if you were the only person that sinned, Jesus would have come and died just for you. Maybe that's true. I don't know. It's not in the Bible. Maybe it's true. But it makes sense because everything's about us now. But actually, there's this much bigger, bigger purpose. And I think it. I think what happens it affects the way we hear the gospel. So if we're Christian-centric, we think that Jesus came to rescue us. And that's how we share our faith. Jesus came to rescue you. Is that part of the gospel? Absolutely. Is it the whole of the gospel? No. Is it primarily the gospel? No. If we understand Jesus' message, we understand that Jesus came to recruit us. Jesus came to recruit you. Along the way, absolutely, he had to rescue us. Because how does... How does darkness bring light? But there's a bigger purpose in Jesus' mind for our repentance. And our teshuva, our turning and returning, can bring about shalom in a powerful, positive, incredible way. But which of the two gospels have you embraced? Can I encourage you, stop preaching that Jesus came to rescue us. Or stop at least just mentioning that. I was in Denmark a while back and I was invited into a school um, and it was an interesting school, the Danish or word, I don't know if you know any, but it was an interesting school. It was like a boarding school and it was, it was kind of strange and, and it was a great school, but it was run by Christians, but none of the students were Christians. And Every Tuesday they had this chapel service and no young person, the school was fairly new, no young person over the last year or two had ever become a Christian. And they said to me, Paul, can you, can you preach at the, at the chapel service? Now, I'm not the best of the, the preachers. There's some really good preachers there. So I said, I will preach, but I won't preach a Christian-centric message. I'm going to preach a kingdom-centric gospel. Is that okay? And they said, yeah, sure. That, that's fine. We don't know what that is, but yeah, you can give it a go. So I preached it, and I, I said to these young people, look, Jesus came to recruit you. You need to turn from your sin and follow him but Jesus came to recruit you and tonight I'll explain what the gospel really should be and how to really share it and I gave an appeal. Three quarters of the young people responded to the gospel and every single young man did. I think we know there's a fight to be fought. I think we know there's a scrap as we used to say in Manchester and I think we know that the word were the winners and these young people when they hear a Christian-centric gospel message It just sounds like what the world's saying. Just be like the world, just use God to get it. But actually, when they hear a kingdom-centric message, something about the truth of it resonates. When I became a Christian, I didn't fully understand exactly what I was doing, but I knew it was right. Something about the gospel message hit something very deep within me and I just knew it was right. Can I encourage you, please stop creating or sharing a purely Christian-centric Jesus came to rescue you message because at some point it's going to lead to disappointment because at some point people are going to find out actually it's not really just about me. And some people can even lose their faith because they buy into a gospel that's only half a gospel. The reality is Jesus came To recruit us, so I'm a bit of a simple guy. I like little visual illustrations, so this means a lot to me. It might not mean a lot to you, but it helps me understand stuff. So let me just illustrate how your teshuva can bring about God's shalom. My little diagram is very simple. Forgive me. Imagine the black dots the Earth, uh, and the white represents the sky. The reason I say that is because the Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It talks about the devil being the ruler of the kingdom of the air. and That that darkness that he brings, that influence that he brings, it's horrible, it's horrific. You turn on the TV every day and you see it and it's a nightmare, it's horrible. And Then in 1 John 3 verse 8, it says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so I gave my life to Jesus, you gave your life to Jesus and something of the devil's territory was taken away from him. A light came and the kingdom of God came. And as we work out the kingdom, as we work out our salvation and the kingdom grows within us, more of our decisions become kingdom orientated, more of the devil's territory is taken. And then maybe we lead someone to Jesus and then we disciple that person and more of the kingdom takes over their life. And then together, we join together and we think, how can we reach others and how can we bring others to know him and how can we, can we talk to other people? And then we disciple those other people and eventually what will happen one day is the kingdom come. Shalom. Things will be returned one day. But think about all the people that are lost without Jesus before that day. How can we reach them? How can we talk to them? How can we touch their lives? How can we minister to them? What is the kingdom of heaven? Where is the kingdom of heaven? It says this, and he will give you all you need from day to day if you live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. That's the NIV version of seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I like the NIV version. The primary concern. It's supposed to be our primary concern, but most Christians don't know. You may be different. Most Christians I meet don't know what the kingdom of God actually is in the sense of they can't articulate it. So I'll say to them, what is church? And all the hands go up. Oh, church is not the building, it's the people of God. Absolutely. What's the kingdom of God? Um, Is that where you go when you die? uh, Kind of, is it the church? The kingdom of God, just very simply, is the rule, the reign, the realm, the royalty of God. When God becomes Lord, when Jesus becomes Lord, when things come under the rulership, they submit to the lordship of Christ. So the kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is now, but the kingdom of God is still yet to come. And we have a part in bringing the kingdom of God now. And the way I like to do this is to make it really practical. You could even close your eyes. I want you to imagine somewhere you know, somewhere you're really familiar with. That you know really well, maybe your neighbourhood, maybe your, your community, maybe your workplace, maybe your school. Just imagine, just hold that in your mind and let me just ask you a few questions. Just imagine this. Imagine everything in that place is aligned with how things are in heaven. So how things happen in that place happen the way things happen in heaven. And all the people have come under the Lordship of Christ. What visual images come to your mind when you think of Jesus' commands, to love one another fulfilled in your place of work? What footage do you see when you visualise his grace and mercy dominating your neighbourhood? What scenarios play out in your imagination when his level of honesty and integrity and godliness are duplicated in your local supermarket or place of recreation? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that if you make... What you see in your mind's eye, your primary concern, he will give you all you need. If you don't, maybe that promise is not for us. Is that your primary concern to give God what he wants? What does he want? He wants repentance. He wants everyone to come to know him. How important is that to you? Or is it a side issue, an upgrade if you get particularly excited by a Sunday service one day? Or is it what drives you? Politics, will not bring about what God wants. Only the kingdom of God will. Um, I I lived in uh, Manchester, this is where we lived. Um, The middle house, kind of in the middle of that picture, this picture I should say, is where we lived, this house here. It was a bit of a rough area. We found out, we didn't know at the time, but when we left, we found out afterwards, it was the uh, most deprived part of England apparently. One day, this came through our door, it was a a trifold pamphlet about a young boy called Robert McDermott. I'm guessing he was around about 14 years old at the time, and it was on two sides, this is just one side of it. And it was about his ASBO, Antisocial Behaviour Order. He was basically put under house arrest, and 14,000 of our neighbours got this leaflet to tell us about him. And the reason was, there's a little map, you might see it just here, with a little red line around it, And there's a little bit here and it says, what you can do. So it says all the things that he's done wrong, that he's under house arrest, and it says what you can do. So I'm like, okay, what can I do? What can we do as a community? How do we help? How do we help his family? How do we maybe help him? How do we help the victims? What do we do about this? And it says this, if you see McDermott break his ASBO, please contact the police or the council's local housing service, safe in the knowledge that we will protect your privacy. In other words, if you see him outside of the red line, give us a call. We won't tell anybody it's you and we'll lock him away. I think you can sum up that whole document in three words. We give up. We don't know what to do. If the church gives up, there's no hope for Robert. One day we were watching the TV and uh, this photo came on the TV. A young lady called Susan Kappa, she was 16 years old. She'd been kidnapped for a week and tortured for a week. Um, the way she died without going into too much detail is they, they pulled out all her teeth when she was alive so they couldn't recognise her dental records they took her in South Manchester dumped her and poured gasoline on her and set her on fire miraculously she managed to survive long enough to crawl to a road, get picked up by the police and she told the police who had done it so then on our TVs, me and Lynn having our tea and watching TV a pitch comes up of the killer's and it shocks Lynn because she knew them because she used to go to their house to cut their hair. And we realized our next door neighbor was the grandfather of the killers. What shocked me was the photo of where it happened because there was a house, terrace house in England. It was about a stone's throw approximately from our house, maybe a couple of stone's throws from the house. And I realized I'd walked past that house four times every day she was being tortured. Where had I gone? Gone to my church office and come back for lunch. Gone back in the afternoon, come back in the evening. Completely unaware of what that happened. You came to church this morning. How many houses do you pass by? You have no idea what was going on in those houses. But the ruler of the air is influencing those places and we have the only hope. The only thing that's really going to change things. It's not politics, it's not money. This area was so bad that it, was in, it became national news. In fact, there's a whole Wikipedia page about the whole incident. And it says this, that ministers say that identifying poorer areas in this way will improve their knowledge of where to provide money. They poured millions of euros into this area. And for our house, we owned our house, they knocked our house down and they rebuilt it as a three-bedroom house for free because they wanted us to stay and do what we were doing. And other houses got touch-ups as well. This picture is not before, this is after they put the money in. Because afterwards, the air was just as bad as it was before, if not worse. And then, six years later, they flattened the whole place. It was like ethnic cleansing. It wasn't ethnic cleansing, but it felt like it. They just couldn't handle the problem. They poured money in, but they didn't deal with the real issue, and the devils moved back in. At the same time we repurposed a church three miles away and we said to the police, what can we do to help? How can we help the community? They said, well there's a place called Dean Street. So the old problem with Dean Street was this, was that on Dean Street, gangs came and people were so afraid they got off the streets and they went into the homes. But the new problem we've just been discussing today is where do you call? Because the new problem is now we found that the gangs are going into the house at night. The, the families are going upstairs. And the gangs are just ripping the house apart, eating the, anything in the fridge, watching the TV, just wrecking the place. And in the morning, the families come back downstairs again. If you can do anything about that, we'd really appreciate it. So we partnered with others. I think it was Rick Warren who said, God can do anything through a man who doesn't get care who gets the credit. So we partnered with others, and we, we started something called the Eden Project, where we lived. And literally, normal Christians like you and I, Some people moved their homes from nice areas and they moved into this really rough area called Dean Street. They sold their nice houses and bought not so nice houses. And they just lived there for years. And some people rented. We had about 20 people do it. It completely transformed the community, completely transformed the community. In fact, eventually the government was so shocked they gave us an award. This is the youth leader receiving the award. That's on Wikipedia as well. And then they built a park. The air was so nice, they built a park. And when they asked the residents what they should call the park, the project was called the Eden Project. The residents filled in the survey. The number one answer was Eden. Called it the Eden Park. And the government said no, typically. But the residents realized the spiritual implication of what happened. The kingdom of God had moved in. Where is the kingdom of God? In you and I. We transport the kingdom of God with us. And so today, I'm going to encourage you. What is the kind of religion you have? Is it the one that Jesus witnessed? It's still Christianity. Being Christian-centric is being Christian. It's not about how much God loves you. It's about how much we love him, right? I just want to tell you one last story and finish in a minute. But just to say this afternoon, we're going to look at the message and the method we're going to ask the question, how do we really do this? What I've noticed in churches uh, in my lifetime is churches, were really good leaders like me, we're really good at teaching the what we should do and why we should do it, but we're not always good at teaching how we should do it. And so we've got books and we've got resources and, and tonight we'll look at this, how to reach anyone anywhere, how do you actually get yourself invited? Because one of my big questions uh, really comes down to this, Why is it we spend so much time, energy, and resources inviting people, which is a good thing to do, but so little getting ourselves invited? Do we use the church with a capital C? Do we know how to get ourselves invited into the community? Or do we just want to play politics and force our way in? It's better to be invited because art beats an argument. Do you know how to get yourself invited into a conversation to share your faith? We'll look at how to do that. We also have resources if you're interested in how to disciple anyone in anything, and how to study anything with anyone. We have resources on how to recognize God's direction in your life. We have resources on how to do relationships really well, how to understand people and make yourself understood. And that's what PAYS is about. We want to tool you up, equip you. Because the Bible says our job as leaders is not to do the work for you, Our job as leaders is to equip the saints for works of service, because God poured out a vision and a dream in your life. When the day of Pentecost happened, the Spirit of God didn't fall for the first time. The Spirit of God had fallen before, but only on occasion and only with certain people. On the day of Pentecost, everyone, male, female, young and old were given visions and dreams. You have a vision and a dream and it's something bigger than you and pays and other these we want to hear just to equip you for that. And here's what motivates me. Um, I was born with a full set of, um, sorry, this is one of the books, we have YouTube and we have, a, we have a podcast called Life on Mission that started last week. If you're interested, um, go to Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I was born with a full set of grandparents, I had both of my granddads and both of my grandmoms. Um, but I've got to be honest, I did have my favourite. My favourite was called Grandpops. And he was uh, just sweet old man, he'd do anything to make me laugh, he just did strange weird things. He was a bit like the guy, the mad professor out of um, Back to the Future, he was a bit like that, super sweet guy. And I backslid when I was 18, came back to the Lord when I was 21 and just after I came back to the Lord, he was diagnosed with cancer. And I was in London and I was meeting with him and he, he said, he said, Paul, I know you're a Christian, what should I do? None of my family were Christians and nobody ever spoke to me about my faith. But he said, I know I'm dying, I'm going to die soon and I'm scared, what should I do? Now I have no nerves right now speaking in front of you. I spoke to sometimes hundreds of thousands of people in one go without nerves. But speak to my family is a different thing altogether. Don't know why, but somehow speaking to my family I feel really weird, it feels a bit awkward, it feels strange. And what you do when you're afraid is often you don't run the other way, you just compromise. So what I did... Was rather than leading him to Jesus, I got my Bible open. I said, hey, "Here, here Grandpops, have, have have my Bible and I give it to you, and here's some stuff I've underlined. It read it and do that." And I gave it him, and I left. Two weeks later, he sent me a, a, a written hand note. It was really badly written. He was really struggling. He was dying, and he said, "Paul, that was the nicest thing anybody, the greatest gift anybody's ever given me. But I don't understand it, and I'm still very afraid." I thought this was ridiculous, so I decided to. I booked a train to go back down to London, and a few days before I got there, my mum woke me up in the early morning to say he'd passed away. So I remember very, very, very clearly going to his funeral. I walked into the graveyard, and my grandmother, who never mentioned God or anything either, she ran up to me, tears everywhere. She gave a big hug and a kiss. She stepped back and said these three words: "Paul, where is he?" Now, what I wanted to say was don't worry Gran you know Jesus came and died for our sins and, and I talked to Grand about it and he gave his life to Jesus and, and I don't know exactly what heaven's like but let me tell you every tear is wiped away and there's peace and there's shalom and there's that's what I wanted to say what I actually said because I like to think I'm an honest person I actually said is I don't know I couldn't give her any hope I couldn't offer anything I did not want to make something up I said I just don't know and that angered me. When my grandpops died, I went on a mission trip to fight a battle. And when my mum died, I started a movement and went into war. We're in a fight. It's a battle. And we have so many resources within us. And generally speaking, this may not be you guys, we're doing so little to fight and conquer and destroy the work of the enemy. We are in a battle And it's one we've already won. But it's up to us to activate what God has put in us, the dreams and the visions. What are your dreams and visions? And how can the church equip you to advance the kingdom of God in your business or in your school or in your neighbourhood or in your community or in your office? How can we do that? This afternoon, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how we get ourselves invited. But it all starts with this question, in my mind at least. It all starts with the question, are we more Christian centric or kingdom centric? Is our heart about serving God because if we serve God, He will give us what we want? Or is our heart about serving God in order that we can give Him what He wants, knowing full well He'll take care of the rest? Let's pray. I'm going to ask the, the uh, worship uh, band to come up and we're just going to pray. And I'm just going to simply lead us through a prayer if that's okay. I'm not going to trick you like the evangelist did me. I'm just going to pray uh, and maybe you want to respond. The Bible says it's it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and break it. So I would encourage you not to repeat this prayer if you don't really mean it. I'm going to ask the Lord that those of us who want to respond, who would say, yeah, you know what, I'm probably more Christian-centric right now than I am kingdom-centric. Or even, I'm not completely Christian-centric, but I want to get there. I'm going to ask the Lord to move in us and give us opportunity and show us and challenge us. and That can be a scary prayer but I'm gonna pray that, and if that's you, all I'd like you to do is in your heart or with your mouth, just say, amen, I agree at the end. So I'm gonna pray, and if you wanna pray this prayer with me, then just agree at the end. Just bear in mind that God will take it seriously. Let's pray. Well, thank you so much for dying on the cross. Lord, the words of that song are so true. You didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. Lord, we sang that earlier on, what a wonderful truth. You brought heaven down. But Lord, you did not bring heaven down just for us. Lord, your desire is that everyone who doesn't know you will come to know you. And you've entrusted us with the visions and the dreams and the words to make that happen. So Lord, right now we pray You would give us the opportunity, or show us the opportunity. And you would lead us into opportunities and situations where we can advance your kingdom. Lord, for those of us who know that we've been too Christian-centric, change us, mould us, challenge us, stretch us, so we might move into a relationship with you that is far more kingdom-centric that we won't simply do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing in order that you give us what we want, but we will do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing in order to give you what you want. In Jesus' name we ask it, Lord. Amen.